For the week of Wednesday, April 24th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, a lot went right in the 2018 midterms, especially when it came to coordination between official campaigns and grassroots groups like Indivisible. We are joined this week by Dylan Kate, formerly the Director of Organizing and Strategic Campaigns with the Washington State Democratic Party, to talk about how we can best apply those lessons to the upcoming 2020 elections. And then because 2019 is a year that progressives are looking to do some real bench building, we officially begin our coverage of local and municipal elections Rituja Indipore is running for city council in Sammamish, and we have our discussion with her. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So following the wins in the 2018 midterm election, many of us have been thinking about what we learned and, more importantly, how we can apply those lessons to the 2020 election, particularly when it comes to organizing effectively. Dylan Kate is the former director of organizing and strategic campaigns with the Washington State Democratic Party, and he is the lead author of a recent article entitled The Future of Field, Lessons from the Frontline of the Democratic Resurgence. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, of course. So you start this piece by talking about what we have the chance to build here on the progressive left. Basically, you you kind of outline the stakes of what we can win if we organize properly. You say, quote, we are nearing a broad-based popular movement on the left that doesn't stop with electoral gains at the ballot box, but could also usher in a new era of progressive victories outside of elections. It's a very tantalizing possibility. So talk about some of the things that a well-organized progressive movement could potentially achieve here? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think for me, it all comes down to power. Um, you know, a, a movement, I think, should be judged on its ability to make concrete wins for the people who are a part of that movement or the people that movement is representing. And for me, that's all about power. And so what I think, you know, we should be aiming at here is trying to figure out how working folks and other folks who have been systematically disenfranchised and disempowered in our society can get their hands on the levers of power. And that isn't just, you know, there there are levers of power beyond electoral and beyond political, right? We have economic power that we exert both as consumers and as workers. There's cultural power to change norms potentially very quickly, right? And to change, um, you know, the the sort of sense of what is normal and, and what is acceptable and what are the standards for treating other people. Um, there, there's all sorts of different types of power that a well-organized group of people can can exert. And I think our, our movement and especially our politics should be figuring out how do we help people build that power in every single part of what we do, whether it's campaigns or outside of campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, power is the, the gasoline that drives the change. Um, and you say, quote, we need to run our campaigns as though we are preparing for the day after an election. So really, you're saying that we need to have these sorts of changes in mind as we organize. Yeah, I think that's right. I think as we're designing our campaigns and trying to figure out, you know, how are we winning, we should be thinking about how do we win in a way that doesn't just help us deliver a certain number of voters to the ballot box on election day, but how do we win in a way that after the campaign will have built something, whether it's identified and recruited and trained a, a new cadre of leaders or built new relationships with voters or community leaders or changed, you know, the, the broadly held consensus opinion on a particular issue. We should be thinking about 
how do we want to change the world through this campaign and not just what's the bare minimum we need to do to win on election day. And a big part of that is planning for the day after election day. So rather than having the campaign plan end on that, you know, uh, first Tuesday in November, right, and, and we don't have any plans for what happens after that, besides packing up our offices and going home, we should be thinking about how do we take all that resources, all of those resources that we've gathered, all those connections we've built, all those relationships that we have and that we now that we now hold and transfer those into both local and national organizing that's continuing on past election day. Um, and ultimately, it, it would be a shame for us to spend as much time and, and media attention and money on elections as we do without planning uh, to turn those campaigns into levers for social change beyond November. Absolutely. So it's it's a matter of not folding up the tent once the election is over, but really uh, building on something long term. And you lay out four principles for how we get there. And they are number one, organize volunteers as, quote, whole people by focusing on building relationships. Number two, developing leaders, not just knocking on doors. Number three, if you are asking for people to do big things, you must give them ownership over your strategy. And number four, you must correct systemic imbalances through affirmative hiring practices and a long-term commitment to outreach. So let's just go through those one by one. So let's start with the first principle, organizing volunteers as whole people with a focus on building relationships. So first, what is meant by organizing volunteers as quote-unquote whole people? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's something that... Um you know, it's a concept that I came across through the labor movement where you're working with a really small number of workers in a, a particular workplace over the long term, right? Maybe over three or five years to form a union. And, and this is where you folks. got your start, right? As an organizer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. My career, my background is in labor organizing with, with healthcare workers and, and hospitality workers around the country. And so you've been able to take what you've learned in that experience and put it to use in campaigns for the most part, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And that really comes out of... Um, you know, my, my experience of realizing that we often underestimate folks and we think of people as a means to an end in our organizing. Even you can have the most democratically run organization. Um, but when you get into campaign mode, you really start to think about people as volunteer shifts or the number of door knocks that they can bring in or the number of phone calls that they can make. Um, and not only is that, that, you know, reductiveness, not only is that damaging in, in terms of defeating your capacity to really build a relationship with folks that, yeah. that, last over the long term because you're just really being pretty instrumentalist, right? You're just thinking of them as a means to an end. And I know as volunteers, we've probably all felt like that, right? And we, you know, we keep going back because we believe in the cause, but not because we think that door knocking is our highest and best value (laughs) that we have to contribute to the world, right? Right. And and so what I think the point that we're trying to make in in this piece is that people have so much more to give uh, than what we ask of them. And we don't mean to say that door knocking and phone calling is not important because it is, and it needs to be a critical part of, of our campaign and our movement. But people have so much more to give than that, right? They have relationships um, throughout their community, maybe beyond their immediate community and, and statewide or nationwide. Uh, they have skills from the workplace and from education. They have experience. They have specific knowledge of their own experience and, and, and other experiences. And I think we haven't really figured out a way in campaigns to marshal the complete value that a person has to give to a cause. And I think that's not just to our detriment detriment in terms of, you know, campaigns and the folks who run campaigns, but I think it's really disempowering for folks when we're asking so little of them and they have so much to give. And so the point that we're really trying to make here is we need to figure out how to organize people as the whole person, not just 
um, based on what they have to give, but understanding and building stronger relationships with them as well, rather than just seeing them as a, a means to the end. And I think if we do that, we'll reduce burnout from campaigns. We'll have people who are willing and able to volunteer more and do more and build more power because we're really engaging them as they see themselves as a person rather than as we see them as just sort of a widget in the, in the campaign machine. Well, you know, given that this show is listened to by Indivisible membership here in the state, I figure there are applications for the activist community too, right? Oh, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the first things you can do as an organization that exists over the long term rather than just a campaign is, is do a relationships inventory. Um, sometimes this practice is called community charting, and you actually sit down with each of your members and systematically chart all of their connections in the community. So where do they go to church? Where do their kids go to school? You know, are they in the PTA? Uh, who do they know who's an elected official or a small business owner? And if you do that for one person, that's a really interesting exercise. If you do that for 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 people, you really start to see the, the community power um, that your membership could leverage if you were to systematically reach out to those groups. And we've done that in the labor movement. Some campaigns are really starting to do it, uh, but I think it needs to be done more broadly. And, and that's just sort of one example of what you can do when you're organizing folks as, as the whole person. Yeah. Well, you had an experience uh, with the Washington Dems using an app that some of us uh, are familiar with called Voter Circle to capitalize on those volunteers' existing relationships. Talk a little bit about that experience and what Voter Circle does. Sure. So what Voter Circle does, and it's part of a, a sort of generation of tools, uh, including several others, that are meant to help voters uh, and activists capture their relationships with the audiences that the campaign's trying to talk to. So in other words, it's, it's meant to figure out, uh, to help you figure out, Stefan, who are the 200 to 300 voters uh, in our target universe that you could communicate with directly based on your relationships with them, right? Folks that you've texted before, folks that you've called before, folks who you're friends with on Facebook or, or who you have, you know, in your email contacts. Right. Um, so I first encountered this tool in 2016 as a field director on a congressional campaign. And immediately it jumped out to me as something that would be a huge camp, you know, a huge advantage for any campaign that used it. And it harkens back to what labor organizers do every day, right? At the end of every single conversation with a worker, we pull out a list of, you know, all the other workers in their workplace and go name by name and ask, who do you know? And how do you know them? And when could you talk to them? And through that work systematically over time, we build a really comprehensive, in-depth understanding of the social circle that we're trying to organize. And this all comes from the understanding that people are already organized into social circles, right? People have groups that they're a part of and relationships that they're a part of through work and, and through their kids and through hobbies that exist prior to our campaign and will continue to exist after our campaign. And it's taken a long time for us to develop the tools to map those relationships on the scale that would be necessary to really make an impact on a campaign. Uh, but now with Voter Circle and, and some of these other tools, we have that ability. And so what it literally lets you do is log in and sync your contacts and then send an email about our campaign to you know tens or, or uh, hundreds of people potentially. Um, and you can also text folks and post on Facebook. And what that does is it lets us really, for the first time ever, systematically ask people to mobilize their relationships uh, in, in, uh, in the service of the campaign. So rather than just you know, connecting you with a random person at the door uh, right. and having you, you know, have sort of a really cold start to that relationship where you're asking someone to do something based on you just showing up at their door <laughs> and trying to build a relationship with them really quickly. We can actually help you harness the power of your existing relationships and, and the footprint of those relationships across the electorate that we're trying to trying to mobilize. And from what you report, you got exponential return on that. You talk about through some 300 volunteers, you got 75 
50,000 relationships, and volunteers were able to connect with 50,000 of those voters directly. And it's like you say, you know, doing a cold call is one thing, but people are much more inclined to want to talk about political issues with people they know, right? That's right. Yeah, we, you know, we were really expecting people to be kind of freaked out um, by the perceived invasion of privacy of, of you know, sort of connecting their contacts to our uh, the, the list of voters we were trying to reach. Um, but we were really surprised and folks were actually sort of had this, this experience of like, oh, finally, you're asking me to do something that I really want to do, which is talking to the people I know, <laughs> rather than going out and talking to strangers when it's raining out, right? And it turns out that right. it's actually a, a better use of folks' time and a better use of their unique um, very unique ability to, to do something for the campaign because only you have that particular set of relationships. Only you are the best person to reach out to a lot of these voters. We could send someone to their door and call their phone and it would probably be a much less effective contact, but you uniquely have the ability to move these folks. And so when we were asking folks to do something that only they could do, um, people were really honored to be asked. And, and I think it was a lot more fun for folks too. Um, and just to note this, these statistics were from this 2016 congressional campaign I was on. And the technology is actually much better now. It's gone through a series of iterations and it was put into use in swing states and Virginia in those 2017 uh, House of Delegates elections. So it's really been refined and used across the country now by all of these different applications. And, and I think it's something that every field you know, every field director, every organizer should be thinking about using. Absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see how it becomes even more refined and put into use uh, in the 2020 campaign, because I think we know just how high and important the stakes are going into that election. All right. So uh, the second principle in your piece has to do with developing leaders. Um, And you start this section by talking about measurable metrics for any given campaign uh, and that we should prioritize what you call inputs over outputs for long-term success. So first, give us an example of what you mean by inputs versus outputs. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, as people are are sort of building the plan for their campaign, um, you'll often work backwards from election day and from your your win number or your vote goal, which is the number of votes that you need uh, in the ballot box marked in favor of your candidate or your cause to win on election day. And you'll work backwards uh, from there through all the different things that have to happen for you to get one vote in the ballot box. And so that chain might look like something like, you know, uh, have a bunch of folks sign up to volunteer and then call those folks to turn them out to a a doorbelling event and then have them show up to the doorbelling event and then have them go knock a certain number of doors and then have those door knocks result in a certain number of conversations and have those conversations result in a a certain number of identified supporters and then have those supporters result in a certain, certain number of votes in the ballot box. And what we tend to do in campaigns is measure the things that are really easy to easy to measure, which are the outputs, which are the number of door knocks. Um, you know, you, you can look at any campaign uh, and look at the number of doors they've knocked, and it's like comparing apples to apples. It's sort of become a standard measure. Um, but I think the argument that we're trying to make as, as organizers here is that, you know, that door knock doesn't mean anything after election day. Right. But what really does matter and what stays in play and can stay a part of our movement are those inputs. So not just how many volunteers did we recruit, but how many people did we get to volunteer for the first time ever? And how many people did we get to turn into, you know, 
serial volunteers who are coming back a lot. And then how many of those folks did we turn into volunteer leaders? And how many of those volunteer leaders did we turn into organizers working on, you know, on staff on different campaigns or volunteering in campaigns in a different state? And I think really focusing on those inputs, which are about building leadership and building volunteer power, that's how we're going to result in the kinds of changes that matter after election day. And so we have to change what we measure, I think, uh, in order to get the kinds of things coming uh, out of our campaign that we want that can then fold into a movement. So again, you know, we still need to measure door knocks. We still need to measure phone calls. All of that is really important. But when you have a choice of 20 or 30 metrics to, to prioritize, I think prioritizing inputs makes a lot of sense if we're going to organize in this new way. Another way of looking at this, in your words, is maximizing your capacity as an organization. So, for example, uh, the Washington Dems in the last election cycle managed to knock doors in all 49 LDs in the state with only three paid organizers on the ground. Yeah, that's right. And and it's through being willing to ask people to do really big things. Um, And I think often as organizers, we're afraid to ask people to do a big thing. We're afraid they're going to say no. So we ask them to do this little thing. It's actually not that inspiring. But when we ask people to do a really big thing, which is take ownership over running the door knocking operation in your region, um, you know, not everyone said yes, but the people who said yes were fired up and, and sort of honored and, and felt a lot of ownership over this because they were in charge. And, and so that is how you take a small group of paid staffers and, you know, help them leverage the huge amount of talent and time and volunteer potential that's out there is really asking people to take ownership over their own work in, in their own region. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But before we move on from the leadership issue, I'm wondering if you feel like there's a philosophy for how to spot and recruit natural leaders within movements. Or do they usually self-identify? No, no, I think there is a philosophy. And, you know, in the labor movement, we, we ask this set of questions that we call leadership ID questions. And, and you ask that anytime you have a, a face-to-face conversation with a worker. You ask them these questions to sort of figure out who are the who are the natural leaders in their in their workplace. So what are those um, sorts of questions? Well, stemming from the definition that a leader is someone who has followers, we want to just ask questions that figure out who has followers. So one of those is, um, you know, who's the person who organizes the, the neighborhood potluck or the workplace potluck? Um, or who's someone who always remembers folks' birthday and always gets people to the surprise party? Um, who's the person you'd go to if you know you needed someone to watch your house or watch your kid while you were away <laughs> for a few mm. days, right? Who who can you count on? Who do you rely on? Who do you trust? Um, who's someone that other folks trust or or listen to or respect to uh, or, or respect? And I think. What we have to understand as organizers is that on campaigns, we can have lots of people who want to do a lot of work, but there are some people who, through their personality or their position in the community, have carried that extra weight, carry that extra respect, and have a unique ability to, to change people's minds and turn people out. And we need to make that a part of our work, is identifying those folks and then making sure that we're staying in relationship with them uh, after the campaign is over. So you touched on this already, but you're third precept for organizing is big asks require giving big ownership. You say that you want to get a buy-in from volunteers, and the right approach there is for organizers on the ground to try to, quote, work themselves out of a job. So talk about that. Yeah. You know, and I think anyone who, uh, you know, I think all of us have examples of this from our own jobs in the past, from our own workplaces, right? And you can imagine what it feels like uh, to have a supervisor who just gives you a series of tasks to accomplish. Right. Um, you know, versus a supervisor who 
brings you in on the planning process and asks you, how can we make this happen, right? How can we execute this strategy? Um, and I think most of us will feel way more bought in and way more passionate about a project if we've had some say in developing the strategy and some creativity and how to execute it versus if we're just assigned tasks, then we may just do the bare minimum to complete those tasks, right? Or, and, or we may not, we may just resent the person who does sort of a taskmaster for us. So what we've tried to do, and we certainly haven't always done it perfectly, uh, because there are certain things in a campaign that should not be public information. So we can't totally open up the whole campaign plan. But what I think you should try to do is involve people as early as possible in the planning process. And one way we did this at, at the Democrats um, in my first month, actually, as the, the organizing director and in April of 2017, we built this online program uh, called the New Blue Plan. And what we did was we put a whole set of, I think, 17 or 20 strategic priorities, everything from focusing more on swing districts to uh, you know, building uh, our long-term infrastructure in red districts that aren't swing yet, but that we're hoping to turn them into swing districts, focusing at local races, focusing on big races. We, we put all of these different, you know, strategic priorities in different directions for our, for our party uh, online and let our activists vote on them and comment on them and give us feedback. Um, and that was hugely important because not only did we get a lot of great information that I certainly did not have uh, from my perch in Seattle, <laughs> right, mm. from people all over the state about what would work and what wouldn't work in their in their area. But we also figured out where the heat was. And what I mean by heat is, you know, what are the priorities that people would really move heaven and earth to accomplish? Um, and what we heard from folks is we don't want you to give up on any county out of our 39 counties. We don't want to give up on any legislative district out of our 49 legislative districts. Mm. We want you to knock doors in Chihuahua, <laughs> you know, even though we know we're not going to win we want to have a presence there we don't want to be the only democrats there we want movement and action and an opportunity to to slowly move our our district a little bit bluer sure you can start to build up infrastructure and you also get the opposition to spend money there when they weren't expecting to have to spend there on an easy win right Exactly. Yeah. And luckily, you know, I mean, this was the strategy that we were already sort of hoping to accomplish, but it was really validating to learn that, yeah, people want to do this. Um, and so we were able to go back to them and say, this is what we heard and, and this is what we're going to do based on the feedback that you've given us. And so that's how we ended up with our, our strategy of knocking doors in all 39 counties uh, rather than just focusing on swing districts in, in 2017. And there's so much to be gained from that. And it it makes one wonder why organizers haven't done this in the past. I mean, obviously, there's certain Certain things you can't talk about, but I mean, is it that they feel proprietary over the strategy that they're not willing to, to share as much? What do you think? Well, I, I certainly want to flag that I think um, organizers have done this in the past. I just don't think it is the way that things are usually done. So, you know, every and also, you know, I'm not the only organizer who contributed to this article. We had, you know, four incredible organizers from the party who brought their own personal experience into this. And that's Maria Beltran and Guillermo Mogalon, Garrett Moore and Alex Scott. And they all brought their expertise from other regions, uh, other areas of work into writing this article and developing these best practices. And I personally have learned a lot from reading, you know, reading uh, stuff like the, the Rules for Revolutionaries book that was written by Becky Bond and Zach Exley, uh, sort of deep briefing the 2016 Bernie campaign um, and have learned a lot from reading folks like Grace Lee Boggs and Jane McAlevey. And so I think these ideas and these practices have been out there for a long time. But what we have not figured out is how to scale them up and make them the common practice, the best practice in campaigns. And I think the way to do that is just to build this cadre of organizers and staffers and volunteers who are bought into this vision and, and who are, you know, 
uh, updating this vision with their with their experience and who are demanding this from the folks who are making decisions, both funding decisions and, and planning decisions around campaigns. And also to get your article out there in a big way. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it certainly helps to get feedback and hear from folks all over the, the country. And it, we've been really stunned by the by the response from folks so far. Um, and it's been great to find that so many people are trying to do really similar things all over the country. And so I think a lot of us are sort of converging on this new way of, of doing things. And that's why we called it the future of field, that we hope that uh, if everyone who's working on this is successful, that this will become the new future of how, how campaigns are run. Well, you know, you also talk about empowering groups like Indivisible and Swing Left when you work with them. Uh, talk about some of the dividends that, that you saw in those interactions. Oh, well, I think they've been huge. And I think this comes back to recognizing that folks are already self-organizing into groups. And our job as organizers is to identify those groups and recruit their leaders. Um, so our group, our, our you know, role is never to co-opt or steal people from one group and try to put them into our container or our organization because that's reinventing the wheel. People are already organized and that's our goal. So then our, our, our tactic becomes, how do we make our plans align, right? How do we make what we're doing fit with what those groups want to accomplish? And the dividends were huge for, you know, for the, for the state Democratic Party. I mean, I think at least a third of the doors we knocked were knocked by organized groups like um, Indivisible and like Swing Left, especially in the well, 8th Why don't you go ahead and just repeat that for my listening audience? I think that is just a fan. <laughs> you mentioned that in your article, and it's just such a great statistic. Totally, yeah. So I, at least a third of the doors that were knocked in, uh, in our 2017 and 2018 campaigns in Washington state were knocked by folks via organized groups like indivisible and, and swing left, and awesome. especially in our swing districts, um, you know, in the eighth congressional district, that was huge. And the, and the third congressional district, that was huge. Um, and we also have to recognize that membership in these groups is really permeable, right? People show up some months and sometimes they, other months they go to their democratic party meeting and other months they go to a different group. Um, so we, again, need to just think of these as collection points where people are organizing and where there are leaders who are directing activities. And how do we coordinate our activities to sort of maximize our ability to, to take collective action as a movement? Um, so that was really our approach is turning the party into a little bit of an open source platform for folks to get their electoral work done, knowing that these groups also do a lot of work outside of the electoral context, right? Indivisible does a lot of work to hold elected officials accountable for their votes, um, and then an election time comes back in and, and does a lot of door knocking and trying to change who we have in elected office. So we wanted the party to become the platform for all these different organizations and all these different people to come do their electoral work. Um, yeah. Well, you know, just taking that, that line of thought a step further, per the methodology that you lay out in your article, um, a field campaign director should be working to empower these grassroots groups uh, when working alongside them. But what should those of us in Indivisible do to make sure that we're being empowered in the ways that you recommend? Yeah. Well, I think it really depends on who you have as an organizing director. But I think you know, demonstrating in a really visible and concrete form your ability to move people towards action is the best way to really get taken seriously. Um, so, you know, being able to turn a bunch of people out to a candidate forum or to a march or to a door knocking event, if you can do that early on, that will increase your ability to have influence over how the campaigns run and, and be taken seriously. And of course, you know, from our perspective, uh, all of these organizations should be taken seriously automatically, right? Because we all we all exist for a reason that people want them to exist, that people find some value there. And that means we need to organize together. Um, but I would say figuring out ways to concretely demonstrate your ability to move people into action um, will be a, a sort of the best strategy for being a bigger and more important part of a campaign. 
Well, Indivisible, uh, I can speak from experience, excels in that area. So there you go. Um, Absolutely. So so then in your fourth principle, you say, quote, we must write systemic imbalances through affirmative hiring practices and a long-term commitment to outreach. This has to do with staff hiring on the campaign side. And this, Bobby, it seems like it should go without saying for Democrats in 2019. But talk a little bit about the importance of diversity in field organizing. You say, quote, organizations should internally look like the world that they are fighting to build. That's right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, again, this comes back to a, a, a longstanding organizing principle that you want your staff and your organizers to to be a part of the communities that they're organizing. Um, and I think all too often we've taken the expedient approach of just uh, recycling the same folks from campaign to campaign to campaign and not really making room for people who are coming with different experiences. And that's been to our detriment. And I, I have to give credit to Diane Bedwell, who's uh, our organizing, uh, sorry, our coordinated campaign director for hiring the most racially and, and gender um, uh, and sexual orientation diverse uh, campaign staff that we've ever had on the coordinated. Um, and that is directly connected to the fact that that staff broke all of our previous records um, uh, for all of the metrics that we judge our campaigns by. Um, they really excelled in their regions, and that's because they reflected the folks who were living in those regions. And we hired people who had local experience and who had you know, the same background, the same experience as, as the people they were trying to organize. And I think that's so important, not just because it's the right thing to do, because it is the right thing to do, but also because it is how you're going to make your campaign successful. Well, it's a tremendous read, and I will have a link for it for everybody up at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Dylan Kate is the former director of organizing and strategic campaigns with the Washington State Democratic Party. He's the lead author of the article, The Future of Field Lessons from the Frontlines of the Democratic Resurgence. Dylan, thanks for your work, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you uh, again as we get into 2020. Stefan, thanks for having me on. Thanks for sharing our article and really appreciate all the work you and and all of the folks in the Indivisible Movement are doing. So thank you. Rituja Indipore is running for City Council of Sammamish, and she joins us now to talk about her campaign. Hi, Rituja. Hello. So first, I just want to give people a sense of your background a little bit. So you have a degree in international commercial law. You currently work as an analyst for Costco. Uh, And we'll talk about your specific platforms in a moment. But I'm curious first why you decided to run for office. I mean, as we know, there are a lot of ways to serve one's community. So why have you chosen to run for elected office? You know, my family moved here uh, to Sammamish uh, almost 16 years ago, and we came to Sammamish mainly to raise our family. And like you said, you know, giving back to the community actually is in my DNA. I've been taught it's a family value that we practice. Uh, Even my kids and my husband, you know, we are out there, um, you know, serving people. Um, And running for office, I would say, is an extension of giving back to the community because I really believe in the servant leadership model of leadership. And uh, for me, being in an elected office is also continuing to serve in a different capacity. Um, And I uh, really believe in in serving at the grassroots level. And I think this is the opportunity that I get at the when I'm standing for election for Sammamish City Council is, 
you know, I might be at a grocery store and somebody will stop me and ask me, so what are you doing about our local park? Um, and, you know, so it, it has a great impact, in my opinion, to serve locally. Um, and also it brings in uh, fresh ideas. Um, it brings in, uh, you know, the strength that I bring in as an analyst, as a previous lawyer, as a mom, um, as somebody who's a working mother who commutes in traffic. I bring in a lot of different uh, strengths um, to, to this position. I've managed projects with large budgets. Um, I've managed resources, uh, people. I do data analysis on a regular basis. Um, and I believe that, you know, working together, we can resolve some of the issues that are plaguing our city. Um, and, you know, that is why I choose to um, run for office. So let's talk about your platform. So one of the things that you talk about is the need for safe neighborhoods. And you spoke a couple of months ago at a vigil following a series of hate graffiti in the Klahani neighborhood. Um, And, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, think of the east side as being inherently safe. But that incident was troubling on a number of levels. Can you talk about how we address something like this? Yeah, you know, um, Sammamish, as you might have heard or known about, I know lots of realtors talk about it, is one of the safest cities to live in. And I agree with that. You know, Sammamish is one of the safe cities to live in. But in the recent years, um, we have seen a slight increase in hate crimes. What I can say is hate has no place in our community. Uh, You know, um, when I came, uh, you know, We didn't have any family around, so our neighbors are really our family. You know, they are the ones who watch our kids if we have to run errands. Or, you know, there were times when I used to be stuck at work and I could just call my neighbor and say, hey, can you pick my child up from school? So that is the kind of community we expect and we want to have. We want to feel safe in our neighborhoods. I do not want, uh, if somebody's walking on a, you know, Kalahani Boulevard, I don't want them to get screamed at. I don't want them to feel scared of walking on streets for who they are. I think um, one of the things I've been really impressed with with our police chief is her concept of community policing. And, um, you know, she has started a Healthy Communities Coalition group where uh, nonprofits and faith-based organizations, community leaders, we all come together and we start talking. Uh, I mean, even for a big city like Sammamish, you would be surprised. We have very few avenues where we can really talk, you know. I, I think but it's very important that we make clear that we are a very tolerant and accepting city and start using, you know, we instead of you. I think uh, semantics sometimes mm. matter too. Um, and, you know, Sammamish is almost 35% immigrant population. So, yeah, the city belongs to all of us and all of us should make sure that our neighbors and newcomers feel welcomed. Agreed. And this is where leadership really sets the tone. Um, you talk about the need to solve transportation issues as being tied in with environmental issues. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Sammamish is uh, really, if you, think, if you look at Sammamish, it's an island. It's, uh, you know, we have 202 to our north and sort of I-90 to our south, and there are very few roads that go between east and west. Um, In Sammamish, we have uh, around 22,000 people who go out of the city to work each day. And we have around 3,000 to 4,000 people come in to the city to work. 
Um, and we don't have a lot of transit. We don't have, uh, you know, not a lot of bus, bus services. There's, there's no light rail. Yeah. There is no, there's no possibility of getting a light rail. <laughs> However, and this is what we really need to work on as going ahead. And that is why I think we need to brainstorm around what are the different transportation options do we have. And I think it is, uh, transit is one of the big ones. But I think making small improvements to our roads and railway systems is also one way in tackling, you know, for us less time sitting in traffic. Um, what I would also like to see is, as you said, you know, it has an environmental effect. You know, so many cars going in and out of the city. I think we also need to do a better job of working with the people who employ the almost 22,000 people who go out of our city to work. What can be done to help? And can we have this conversation with corporations saying, hey, change your work hours, or can you have more buses, which will commuter buses, for example? And we've seen examples of that. You know, we have Microsoft connector buses in, in Sammamish. Mm. We have, uh, you know, T-Mobile and Amazon who also have commuter buses. So I think those have started. I think we just need to make sure that other companies are buying into this model. Uh, also, I've been very impressed with the pilot program that Mercer Island did uh, a few months ago, uh, where where they found out that even people who were willing to take transit, uh, they would come into the transit center and then find that all lots were full. And, you know, that discouraged them from taking transit. And so they would just drive to work because, you know, they were there, frustrated, can't find a park. Okay, I'm just going to go. Right. Um, and so Mercer Island and uh, STA and I think uh, Metro also, um, they, and don't quote me on the Metro, I'm not really sure, but I know, but they had a pilot program basically with app-based um, uh, car services and where they were given a voucher. Uh, the people were given a voucher and, you know, the car came to pick them up from home and drop them off at home. And it was a very successful program where more than 6,000 people used that program in a span of six months. Those are the kind of public-private partnerships we also need to bring into our city to help with, um, with the transportation problem. Well, you know, you spoke earlier about the number of people who commute in to Sammamish, and you've talked about how teachers, firefighters, and uh, other people at similar income levels can't afford to live in the community that they serve. Uh, how would you look to address something like that at the city council level? Right. You know, I was at a meet and greet a few days ago, and uh, we had a set of, uh, of a little older citizens uh, sitting in that group. And I asked them uh, if when they were growing up, if they had a teacher who was their neighbor or, you know, a firefighter or a policeman. And many hands went up. And then the other one where we were a lot more younger, uh, not many hands went up. Yeah. Uh, because these days it's impossible for uh, somebody who works in the community to live in there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I again, I feel it's, it's a huge detriment to, to our communities when people can't interact. I think it's at times it's also a public safety issue. You know, uh, we don't have many firefighters living up in, in Sammamish. What if there is a, you know, huge fire? Sure. Um, or, you know, what if uh, there there is an earthquake? And so with all that, I think... It's really imperative upon us to make sure that um, 
they can live in the city. I think the other section of people that I'm also concerned about is our senior citizens. Our senior citizens want different kinds of housing and not just necessarily retirement homes. They want different options to be able to continue to live in the city. I think one way of doing this is, you know, what sort of our town center has done um, is to allocate a certain percentage of um, development for affordable housing or workforce housing. I think that is how one must start. And as we go ahead into the future, you know, when we have uh, bigger developments happening, I think we need to have, um, we need to talk about how can the developer be incentivized to keep aside certain portion of their uh, development for workforce housing. How would that work exactly? What our city has done in the past, for example, has been um, city had uh, some land uh, that they owned, and that was donated, for example, to build homes uh, for Habitat for Humanity. The city is a member of ARCH, which does help with affordable housing throughout East Side. So, so for people who aren't familiar with ARCH, what is that? So ARCH is a coalition of cities on the east side that help uh, with affordable housing. So they, for example, help with Imagine Housing or they have, uh, you know, they own properties um, and uh, through them, uh, people who, uh, you know, make below a certain percentage of the AMI, uh, the median income, uh, actually get to stay in, in those homes owned um, by either ARCH or by agencies that are supported by ARCH. So Samamish contributes on a yearly basis uh, a specific amount into that pool of money so that, you know, we are helping with affordable housing in some way, even though it might not be specifically building buildings in Sammamish. Um, but, you know, we're helping throughout the east side. Well, it sounds like there are a number of different ways to address the problem. So where can people learn more about your campaign? Yeah, so people can go to my Facebook page at Electrituja, and they can also go to my website at www.electrituja.org to find more information. Terrific. I will have links to both of those at indivisiblepodcast.org. But Rituja, it is wonderful to talk with you and uh, best of luck. Great. Thank you so much. And that will do it for this week's show. As always, you can find everything at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you have not subscribed, you can do so there. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Dylan Kate and Rituja Indipore. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.